Hello, and thank you for joining for what will be the second episode of the Burning Bridges podcast. Uh, Well, hopefully second. I'm releasing this and the first one at the same time, so if you have OCD, then this is most definitely your second episode. If not, well, guess what? There's another one out there you can listen to. Probably won't be as good as this, but hopefully it'll be better than the last. My name is Mike Spriegel. I'll be your host as uh, we look back at the overall arcing feeling of nostalgia and how time, of course, affects how we look at the things we love. Uh, Today, uh, more or less, you know, it's going to be one of those topics that everybody's going to have a strong opinion on. We're going to talk about the original Star Wars trilogy. Wait a second, did I just say we're? I did say we're. Right now, uh, joining me for this podcast is an old friend, long time. His name is John. Say hi, John. Hello, everybody. I feel honored and privileged to be the first guest on the first official episode of your new podcast, sir. And if you screw this up, you'll be the last ever time you're ever on this podcast. So yeah, I believe that. There's lots of bodies buried out there. Yes, I am rather vindictive for the most part. But, you know, if you listen to the first episode, what the overall premise was is going back and thinking about the things we loved as kids are growing up. And both myself and John have unique experience of both being almost 40 years old. He is 40. I will be turning 40, or at least at the time of this. But it's one of those things that when we look at how we love the things we did when we were kids, it was through a different view, you know, and how time and perspective sometimes takes the things that we do love and kind of twists it around sometimes. So it's more or less going to be one of those discussions about how things stand up the course of time. Now, with Star Wars... I think the tricky thing about Star Wars is this, is that this is something that's almost 40 years old from when the first movie came out. And it's almost gone on to its third generation of viewers and fans because you have the original trilogy, you have the prequels, which we won't discuss, and now you have the new set of movies that are coming out. So we're talking multiple generations, and not to mention that you know, people that are my age and do have kids. John, you have kids as well. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot. That just means there's lots of entry points for some people. Some people that are like our age and generation, their their entry point is going to be most likely the original trilogy. There's people who are younger than us. They're you know they didn't maybe see it till the special editions or the prequels, like you mentioned, or like my kids. They're you know more or less first exposure is you know the Force Awakens, the new ones that are coming out. So you know based on I think where your entry is on there is going to kind of affect how it's affected you. Right, and I think the other thing, too, is that storytelling, as well as what mediums and what technology is available for storytelling, has also created a lot more differences in what a movie is now versus what it was in yesteryear. I mean, I don't think we'll ever have a doubt or an argument that the original Star Wars was a pioneer when it came to special effects and technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that back in the day everybody looked at it was one of the things I think that kept people going back to theaters with special effects and it's something that it attracted I think both moviegoers and professionals as like to kind of watch and see what what they were doing how they did it and it kind of set a lot of people's imaginations on fire for a lot of different reasons so I mean first and foremost what was your entry point I mean what's the earliest memory you have of Star Wars honestly like one of my first memories I think is going to see Empire Strikes Back, and I don't remember much of it, you know, I would have been three, I believe, at the time, um, and I just remember going to the movie theater, and we were seeing Empire Strikes Back, my mom and dad said, if anything scares you, just let us know, and I don't even really remember much of the movie itself, I remember White from obviously the, the Battle of Hoth, you know, the beginning part, 
but I don't remember much else. I mean, other, other than that, it was just, it was kind of the movie that was always on at our house. <clears throat> you know, you hear kids, you know, parents nowadays talking about how they watch Toy Story two, three times in a day. And for us, that movie was Star Wars. It was kind of, you know, the movie just put on, the kids could veg out and watch it, you can wander off. It was kind of just, you know, it was part of the atmosphere growing up for us as kids. Yeah, for myself, I, I agree. The first earliest memory I had was Empire, and we would have been, it came out in 80, so we would have been barely four, three and a half, four. I don't believe, if I'm correct, and memory is, of course, a fuzzy thing, the first time I think I saw it was in about probably 81 or so. It was still making the rounds in theaters, and that's because back then movies stayed in theaters longer. Now it yeah, everything's yeah. like four or five months, and it's already out on Blu-ray. But Empire was definitely the first uh, one of the first movies I saw in the theater, which is one of the big reasons it had a big impact. I think the other thing that also, you know, sticks out in my head is I remember a lot of, like, First and foremost, I remember crying. I cried a lot in the beginning of the movie because... Really? When, well, yeah, because the first thing I see, four or five years old, and as a kid, I was a pretty sensitive kid. Yeah, I suppose, just Luke getting the crap beat out of him and... Exactly. The hang, hanging upside down and some big, scary monster coming around the corner. I, I, I My parents had to take <laughs> me out of the theater. They took me out of the theater because I was crying way too much because of the Wampa Monster. And it's like, oh, God, it's a yeah, yeah, monster. And I, don't, and I don't remember any of that, so maybe I was just too out of it as a kid or I was just too engrossed in the spectacle being a big movie theater. I, I, like I said, I remember White, and that's about it. I don't remember being scared. That doesn't mean that I wasn't. I could probably call my parents and ask them how did I react, but... Yeah, with Empire, it's definitely the earliest memory I have. It's not to say that I probably didn't watch Star Wars before then, but I don't quite as much remember. I mean, both of us were born in 76, and, you know, so for us to remember that movie when it came out would be very difficult. My son, when he first watched the original trilogy, he watched it when he was about three and a half. You know, he still remembers it, but I'm sure as time's gone on, you know, he can remember various details, but... And part of it is just depending on how much he watches the movie itself. But that was one of the, probably the you know the earliest memories, I agree, was definitely Empire. And it, it had a big impact, and I think it continued to build more of an impact for me as time went on. Um, you know, going forward, you know, what was probably your favorite movie out of the original trilogy? I kind of go against the grain here. Most people will say Empire Strikes Back, but I'm more, I'm more an original guy. I'm a New Hope guy or Star Wars, depending on how you want to call it. Um... And I'm fully willing to admit that most of that is probably just because of nostalgia, because that was the main one that was on, and it's just, that's the one I have the fondest memories of watching and whatnot, and, you know, in my eyes, at the end there, when Han swoops in and saves Luke's butt, and they blow up the Death Star, it's still, for me, one of the coolest moments in all seven of the movie movies, and, you know, so it's just, that movie in general, just, it's, you know, I, I realize it's probably not the critically the best, and if you look at, you know... It, with that eye, it's probably not the best one, but for me, that's that's the one for me. Yeah, I, I'll say that Empire was probably my favorite out of the three, and it's not for, I think, you know, trying to be a, with the grain, since you're saying against the grain, because, you know, I remember, like, watching Clerks, and, you know, the whole conversation, well, Empire, you know, was just a big downer, and I don't think necessarily that Empire was a big downer. I think one of the things that I was liked about Empire was definitely it was a very rich movie and it made you pay attention to a lot of details and character development but I think the other thing too is that it was one of those movies that went against the grain and had it where the bad guys won when you're a kid and you watch a lot of movies traditionally the arc that most movies tend to take is that you know here's your hero bad heroes established Here's the crisis, the situation, or the antagonist they have to face, and they have to overcome that. And then in the third act, they resolve and overcome that antagonist. 
in this movie right here, and especially as time's gone on, it's not been that. It's, you know, hey, the bad guys won pretty much the majority of the movie. Any victories that the Rebels yeah. won in that movie and, were and I would say victories. They, I think the, the good guys ultimately still come up on top at the end. I mean, they still get away for the most part, but there was definitely a high cost that they had to pay in order to get away and without, you know, without all of them getting captured or killed or whatever. There was definitely a high cost to that. But yeah, I, it's not to say that, you know, I don't like the original. The original Star Wars Episode Four, whatever you want to call it, that one definitely was a great movie. And when we get into the breakdown of the movies, you know, there, there's things that I think the first movie did amazingly well, and that's what makes the first movie. And I think there's things that the second movie did amazingly well. Well, that makes it the second movie. The third movie, there's things that did amazingly well, and I think there's things that did amazingly awful, but we'll we'll get to all these various points. What impact did the movies have on your life, you know, and not just back then as a kid, but how has those movies stuck with you as you've grown in age? For me, I'd say it, it's had a pretty huge impact. I mean, I'm a pretty big geek nerd, whatever you want to call it, all around, you know, I'm into comic books and gaming and all that stuff but star wars is probably my number one fandom type thing and you know so because of that i've spent a lot of time reading and watching the movies of course and video games and all that but i've also i've got you know i've got a, you know another one of my very good friends i've made because you know because of our our cold you know we've both really like star wars and it's just something that we kind of touched on since then we've grown pretty close and if it wasn't for star wars we may not have made that initial connection to start with and you know um, and on top of those, just with my kids, it's something that we connect on too, because, you know, obviously with their dad being a big Star Wars nerd, he kind of pushes that on them a little bit, but I haven't had to push it too hard because they've taken to it fairly well. So it's something we've, you know, we've kind of enjoyed watching the movies together and we'll talk about it and whatnot. And it's, uh, so it's been something to connect with them as well. Yeah. For me, I think with Star Wars, the original trilogy, it was one of the, probably the first things that I was probably truly passionate about. It was something that, you know... I just was enamored with, and I had to know more. It drove me to know more about the universe. I mean, I remember as a kid, there would just be magazines, comics. It was just, yeah, I craved more and more just to know, like, hey, who is that character? And that was the one thing that Star Wars did really well is that, you know, some movies you have a lot of extras. Well, Star Wars had extras, but they kind of always imply that, hey, this person's an extra, but guess what? This extra has a backstory. This is something that's... This person is, and you'll be like, well, who's that guy? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? Yeah, that's something they've always done very well with the different novels and comics and stuff like that, is flushing that almost to a fault to where there's just some random guy you'll see for half a second, and there's an entire, you know, 300-page novel based on that guy. I mean, but I mean, it is kind of, you know, some people get into that, though. Some people like... There's probably a guy at a bus stop that, like, you know, sits there and watches every person that gets on the bus and gives them a very bizarre backstory of some sort. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's people, I mean, I know people who their favorite character, you know, is, you know, out of the minor ones is Bolshek, you know, who, if you know who Bolshek is, then congratulations, you're a super nerd like I am. But, uh, you know, I mean, so for some of those people that are only on screen for two seconds, there's people that looked into their backstory and have, you know, fallen in love with that character for whatever reason. Yeah, and I think the other thing that Star Wars helped do, you know, especially at the age I was back then, is it helped foster my imagination, you know. You had this rich kind of world and universe. You had a lot of things that helped support that. I mean, you had all the toys that helped support your imagination. You had, of course, books, comics, everything else. I mean, it was probably one of those few things that generated an amazing phenomena that, you know, made people get dwell into it. And if you really think about it, I mean... It's one of those first things. I mean, you look at a lot of the blockbusters and movies that happened before that. 
not many of them garnered the amount of financial support and success to generate the sequels it did. When you think about, you know, yes, if you go back in the 70s, you do have movies such as, let's say, The Godfather and The Godfather 2, but it was very rare for movies to get sequels. Yeah, I think Star Wars was definitely the first one to kind of kick off the huge, the, the franchise idea. I think the only one you really would have had before that, you know, James Bond obviously started before that. They were, they were a big one, but I think that was kind of really the only the only franchise game going at the time. And it was it was doing okay, but I don't think it really put up numbers like Star Wars did. I mean, Star Wars came along and kind of showed everybody that, you know, what you could really do with a property like that. Right. It, it gave, it set a bar for everything to be measured with. And I think with the original trilogy, I think there's various points in the time that, you know, I'd say Star Wars maybe faded from my life, but it never truly, truly disappeared. Yeah, there, there was that, you know, as fans call it, the, the dark era from, you know, a few years after Return of the Jedi came out to, a, I think it goes to the early 90s, where there just, there just wasn't a lot of stuff out there. It was just kind of, you know, natural, you know, properties kind of fade from existence when there isn't much going out there to, to support them. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And, you know, I think that lull right there is one of those things that helped build, I think, a lot of out of Star Wars, too, because... You had all these people clamoring for it, and it wasn't there. And I think that's also what helped build Star Wars into a lot of what it really became for the most part. So so let's let's do this. We're going to talk breakdown by breakdown the movies. You know, We're going to address them in the order that they came out, kind of just have some discussions. And the main thing is, you know, what was our memories of them? What was it that we loved, and what does it you know, was about them that hasn't really held up over time? So... Going up and starting with the first movie, we're going to go with, of course, episode four, New Hope, if you want to call it that. With the New Hope, it was definitely one of probably the biggest game changers as movies go. What was one of your earliest memories of A New Hope? I think just like I said, it was the movie that was always on, so it was kind of just perennially there. And also, I mean... Along with that, the toys. It was one of the few things, you know, the toys that came along with it that, you know, that can kind of be stretched out to all three of the movies, is that it was one of the toys that, you know, there's four kids in my family that all four of us kids would play with together and that we could all kind of had a good time with. We, you know, we colored their feet and whatnot, and so we knew whose who's were whose, and we'd trade them back and forth. So, I mean, you know, just kind of being around in the, in the soundtrack, I think, too, as well, was one that my parents would put in from time to time. I mean, that's kind of become, you know, because of that, I think it's become one of the things I've appreciated more about the movies than a lot of things is just the music about it too yeah for me i think was the first movie you i didn't have a phrase to coin of this back then but you know it introduced luke as a point of view character as a kid you didn't know what a point of view character was but if you were a kid yeah. you wanted to be luke you saw luke and like that guy right there is awesome he has a sword that has a giant light that cuts things in half right there. He's obviously yeah. you know, the hero of the movie itself. And that was one of the biggest things that I was stuck out is that, you know, it gave a very relatable character that you wanted to be. Other things that I often remember about the movie, too, when I was young, that always, one thing that always kind of bugged me was the interrogation droid. Like, that had the giant knee. Yeah, I remember, yeah, it, I remember that guy being pretty creepy. Yeah, I just thought it was weird because... It was left always ominous what's going to happen, but, you know, as a kid, I bawled like hell whenever there was, like, I went to the doctor and had to get a shot. So when I saw that, I was afraid of that droid because, oh, my God, she's going to get a shot. She's going to get pretty hurt right there. Yeah, and no, then, and even looking back at it now, that is kind of a messed up scene where, they're you know, they don't really flat out say they're going to torture her and whatnot, but that's pretty much what they're doing there. And that's the thing. How? It's like, all right, we're going to poke you with a needle. Uh, let's 
what that needle is going to kill you. No, I don't yeah, know yeah, and, and maybe that's the other side is that, you know, yeah, they're probably going to torture, but at the end of the day, maybe they just, here's a little injection that's going to make you tell the truth about something, you know, and that's really all it did is just a little prick in the arm and they put a Band-Aid on her and she was good to go. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, that it will always stick out about the first Star Wars when I was a kid was the entire Death Star battle, the entire trench run. I think that was one of those scenes that definitely big and iconic in so many different ways. And, you know, it dealt, did a great job building up tension and how, you know, here's what they have to do. It's an impossible task, and only through the impossible do they find a way to actually, you know, beat the Death Star itself. So... Yeah, I, I, it's definitely has so many benchmark moments. For me, you know, looking back in the film and what's, what's going on 40 years, what still holds up about the film for me is this, is that it does a great job with very simple and effective storytelling. The movie doesn't necessarily waste any time. It introduces your character, has the character have enough beats to kind of like let you know who that person is, what their motivation is, and then they move on. And yeah, I mean, it, it's the storyline is very. I don't want to say basic, but at the end of the day, it is. It's it's kind of a. I mean, it's the hero's journey. Essentially, it was kind of a classic storytelling um, device that you can use. You know, I mean, Luke, you you follow Luke. He starts out as a nobody, and at the end of the show, he's your know, movie. He's the hero of it. You know, and it's kind of it's that only done to, on a different scale. I think than a lot of you'd seen before. I think the other things, too, is that none of the characters, at least when you were a kid, none of it really ever felt cliched. You watched the movie, you didn't really know what a cliche was. And I think later movies, you know, that was part of the problem I think you see in a lot of newer movies is that they introduce characters, and that character automatically fills a specific role. You know that now because you're older. When you were younger, you didn't, you know. You yeah. watch if you watch, let's say, the sequel just coming out right now, Independence Day Two. You know, you watch the first one, you know that hey, this is the cocky brash, you know, guy. This right here is the nerdy scientist who has you know this point. Yeah, you've got all your tropes that you've got to fill. Yeah, you have all these things right there, and that's something that's become very consistent as movies gone on. But back then, you know, there really wasn't as much of that to say the least. You know, but I think you know, good, good emotional moments. The movie really progresses along very well. I can't really say that there was really any part of that original movie that kind of dragged in any shape or form. No, I would agree. I mean, I think at best you could say maybe the two minutes towards the end when they're sitting around talking about the Death Star, but like I said, that's two minutes. I mean, for the most part, it goes pretty much from action sequence to action. You know, even when they're escaping from places, you know, and you'd think that would be kind of a, a downtime, that's when you get some awesome dogfights out in space with the TIE Fighters and Millennium Falcon and whatnot. I mean, so... Even in between your big action sets, you still get, you know, your nice little space battles as well. And I think the other thing, too, is they, they use those moments whenever you don't have action. Guess what? Here's some basic character development, enough to help build up and help establish the motivations of what each character is itself. It, looking back on the movie itself, the one thing I will say is this, is that none of the actors or actresses in that movie are really that great. I would say that Harrison Ford obviously nails down his role, but, you know, when you look back and watch it now, Luke is kind of pretty whiny in many ways and sometimes feels over the top. Yeah. Princess Leia is kind of weird in the sense that, all right, she feels British, but, you know, how she handles herself. I think the best done roles in that overall movie was probably, you know, Harrison Ford is uh, Han Solo, and then Peter Cushing is uh, Ram Moff Tarkin. Both those two, I think, did an amazing job and showed, I think, some experience that they had. Just keep in mind, like when uh, that movie was made, 
Carrie Fisher still in her teens, you know. I oh mean, yeah, yeah. I think she was like seventeen or eighteen. I want to say nineteen is what I believe. But you know what? I don't know. And if somebody's probably going to correct us on this and yeah. send us emails on it, but yeah, regardless, I mean, her, Mark Hamill were both very fresh. You know, I mean, and and that being said, I don't think it hurts it at all. I mean, their their acting isn't great, but I don't think it's to it's as bad to the point where it you know makes it unwatchable by any means. Right, and part of it too is they're still developing the characters. I mean. You watch Darth Vader from, you know, that movie. He's a completely different character as each movie goes on. The first one, you see Vader. He's angry. He's kind of more emotional. You watch, let's say, Empire. You watch Return of the Jedi. He's very calm and very stoic. He doesn't lose it. But in that first movie, you know, they're still trying to feel things out, you know. So you have him where he's agitated. He's emotional and yeah. everything. and. You know, that, that it's one of those things that, you know, fortunately the movie had sequels that help itself progress itself along, you know, to help develop everything out with the characters itself. What else do you think holds up well about the movie itself, you know, this many years later? I think, I mean, quite a bit. I mentioned the music earlier. I mean, the music through all seven of the movies, for the most part, has been very good, and it's something that's, you know, stood out, I think. And stood the test of time. I mean, I'll, I'll still listen to the soundtracks on occasion as something just to have on in the background. Um, we already kind of talked about special effects. I think that's one of the bigger things that stands out about it and holds stands up to the test of times. It's stuff you can still look at now when you're making a movie and be like, you know, hey, maybe I'm going to take that idea and use it in something that I'm doing. Um, and the plot's kind of the other one. You know, we've already kind of talked. It's something that you can sit down. You can sit down today with, you know, kids or adults even that haven't seen it, which is, you know, becoming more and more common as it's getting older. And it's something that they can sit down and be engaged with, as opposed to some of those movies that are 40, 50 years old, you just can't really connect with because of the way it's told or the setting or whatever. This that, It's got a very timeless story to it, I think, that helps pull people in. Yeah, I definitely agree there. So, now here, here comes the hard part, you know, where you kind of have to be a little bit critical about it. What about the movie doesn't hold up? Yeah, and that's trickier. I mean, it's easy to say something like the hairstyles don't hold up. I mean, you know, but I mean, that's kind of due to the time, and it's it's trickier for me, I think, to be able to pinpoint what doesn't hold up about it, because like I said, this is probably my favorite movie of all time. Um, I will say that two minutes at the end of the, in the movie, when they when they get the, was it, Yavin in sight, and they say, you know, two minutes to, two minutes till they're going to blow it up, basically, and that whole section lasts like 10, 15 minutes in and of itself, but I mean, that's, you know, that's more just a storytelling thing than it is. As we go on, up, you know. time is going to be one of the kind of the weirder things when it comes to the Star Wars universe. Uh, I myself, I think one of the bigger issues I think I have with the movie when you watch when it's older, it's a great movie. It doesn't really, as I said, waste any time and hits all the beats. I think right now the one thing that probably, in my opinion, doesn't hold up with the movie as time's gone on is that it's clearly, you can see some of the limitations the movie had at the time it came out. As much as the movie's lauded for having such amazing pioneering special effects, I think what really hurts and cripples the movie is that there's a lot of references that the movie makes. You know, they reference, you know, the Clone Wars, the Galactic Senate. You know, they, they talk about a lot of things, but the scale of the movie in some ways feels a little bit small. You know, and I think, case in point here, you know, you have... These plans of the Death Star that, you know, are the most important plans. But you don't see, like, an epic hunt to try to find them. You have maybe one Star Destroyer that you see to try to, you know, chase and hunt them down, you know. It sounds yeah. like nitpicking in some ways, but in many other ways, too. I, the other way I think it gets exposed is when you get to the final battle with the Death Star. You have this giant planet-killing, you know, 
like vehicle of destruction and you then have where all right we got 15 rebels coming at it you then you only have about you know a handful of tie fighters it feels small in a lot of ways yeah and i think some of that i think lucas tried to address a little bit with the special editions where like when uh with moss eisley for example you know when they go in there and he's he added a lot more establishing shots that made the city look a lot bigger and there were a lot more creatures running around and and stuff like that. So I think when he did the special editions, he tried to kind of update some of those with varying degrees of success. Yeah, I think the problem with the special editions is that he, I, I know Lucas recognized that, yeah, I didn't have the resources then. I have the technology now to retroactively go back. The problem is is that none of it really feels organic in a lot of ways. It's it's one of those yeah. things you can make it a, with technology an amazingly bustling citywide you know view. But the problem is is that he doesn't have subtlety. He's like, well, I'm going to do all this, but I have to have too much going on. When it's one of those things where there's so much going on in a scene that you know you don't know what to focus on, that becomes a problem right there. And I think that's one of those scenes he does address some of it where he does try to add in a lot more you know ships and everything and digitally, but. It once again, it doesn't match what. Yeah, it does. It does a lot of it. Seems to be a little bit shoehorned in there. Like you can definitely tell those breaks. Like, oh, this looks a lot different than you know what I was just watching ten seconds ago. And and granted, we could do a a whole you know bloody another podcast on you know the special editions and you know why they're good and bad. But yeah, that's definitely I think one of the drawbacks. Yeah, I you know as that's really my only criticism that I think I would have is that you you can definitely get the sense that you wanted to have this grand thing and. You know, part of that, too, a lot of the things that Lucas referenced when he was making the original trilogy, you know, it's well-known he's taken a lot of those cues from a lot of the serials that he watched when he was growing up and trying to emulate. It's trying to create a world by, you know, saying, but the problem is is that he just wasn't able to show that world at the time, and I think that's probably the only thing I can think of that really kind of cripples out, you know, what uh, episode four was and how it was able to be what it was. Right. So, moving on. All right. So, let's talk Empire right now. So, Empire, as I said, probably one of my most favorite movies out of all this original trilogy itself. Um, There's, you know, a lot about this movie that was very unique. And one of the things I really definitely feel helped make it unique was having Irving Kirshner be the director of the movie. And you can definitely see where his influences were definitely a lot more around the character development in the movie itself. Now, both of us, for us, our earliest memories was pretty much Empire Strikes Back as being probably the things at least we, we remember the most, you know, growing up. You know, what else about this movie stuck out for you as a kid? For me, it was mostly the iconic stuff. It was... Hoth, it was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. There, you know, snow speeders running around, these big, huge, you know, the the adats, you know, the Imperial Walkers, and this the, you know, the, the whole David versus Goliath, basically. I mean, you've got the rebels who are this kind of little thing. They've got these little tiny ships that are, you know, basically not doing anything to them, and these huge, you know, mechanical things running around, and it just that whole opening battle was just awesome to this day. You know, I'm, I mean, and other than that, I mean, it's. Oddly enough, I mean, I already said it's not, you know, it's not my favorite. And I think for me, it's it's the one I've kind of got the least amount of memories for as a kid. I mean, for some, for whatever reason it is, I don't know, it just didn't have as big of an impact on me, I think, as Star Wars being my favorite movie and, you know, Jedi, which we'll get to in a little bit here, did for whatever reason. Yeah, I think, you know, my earliest memories of the Wampa side, a lot of things, definitely the Hoth battle was probably one of those just great little pieces of cinematography where you just watch this just epic battle and knowing that it's futile that 
Really, I mean, it was one of those movies that established a lot of, I think, high stakes for, let's say, the heroes. And it became a nonstop escape act for them. Like, how do we get ourselves out of this situation? How do we get ourselves out of this situation itself? And, you know, as I said earlier, it's one of the biggest burning impressions was the bad guys winning the majority of the time. You know, as I said, a lot of hollow victories that you could say the protagonist had in the movie itself. But, you know, I think the other thing that this movie itself, you know, really did such a great job of and I think when you're you know when I was young the movie these characters had their personalities you kind of had like you know the basic rough outlines of who these characters were from the first movie I feel that Empire did what it could to help establish that hey here's your you know the short view that you had of them here's now who they these characters really are and I think yeah I would agree I mean I think you definitely see you know, Han Solo still, you know, the beginning of the movie, he's kind of, he's out, you know, he's out, you know, how soon can I get out of here? He's still definitely out for himself. He's still the scoundrel, the smuggler that you meet in the first movie. But at the same time, he kind of, over the course of the movie, develops into, you know, the more stand-up character that he is. You know, like Princess Leia, you get to see a little bit more of her leadership ability that you didn't really get to see a whole lot of in, in A New Hope because she was kind of just, you know, essentially being a princess being rescued for the most part. You know, and I think... All those things, like all the things that we see in the media today about these characters, I think was what was established in Empire. You know, you you know, Star Wars said Han's a scoundrel, but they showed, yeah, in Empire, he's a scoundrel, but he's here's why he cares yeah, and here's he's, why he yeah, does what he's he does. He's a scoundrel with a heart, though. Right, you know, and those are the things that make it great. I, I think one of the other things that really I love about Empire Strikes Back and you don't realize it, you know, when you're young, but when I'm older now, I look back and it is that Empire really is essentially about the Rebels having just a bad day. Yeah. And the way I, reason <laughs> I say that is because it all it's one of those weird Rube Goldberg-like effects where you have the beginning of the movie, just minutes into the movie itself, you got Luke, he's coming along here, gets his ass completely kicked. That ass-kicking pretty much set an entire just chain of effects because you get Luke, he gets taken out by the Wampa Monster. So guess what? He was going to go investigate the probe droid that just landed on the planet. If he would have stopped that, hey, they would have had a great time yeah, all yeah, together. Yeah, dominoes basically falling. You know, so because of that, the Empire comes and finds Hoth. Because of that, they go ahead and have to leave Hoth. You know, and it's it's one of those weird things about how just a simple amount of uh, bad luck can impact and have a huge chain reaction. I think the... Uh, other thing that I kind of just really find interesting about the whole bad day thing is that, you know, what's the best way to put it at this point? With Luke, you know, it shows, you know, the, his journey and how it affects him, too, in many different ways. Like, hey, you know what? He had one of his first losses and setbacks and how it makes him maybe more brash and more impulsive as the movie goes on itself, you know, and the other thing too that I love, you know, looking at the Han Solo storyline that you never really think of when you're younger because, you know, the entire movie, like in the first Star Wars, they portray that the Millennium Falcon is this amazing ship that can do all these things. But in the second movie, the Millennium Falcon's just having nonstop struggles. Yeah, it's, right. it's, the whole thing is basically just, you know, we need to get this thing into a car repair shop because, you know, the, you know, the first time you see it take off from Hoth, they're having problems with it. But think of it this way, though. You know why, though? Because the Rebels, they thought, hey, we have our base. We're going to be completely safe. Han and Chewie, they were just doing a lot of maintenance in the Falcon. It's more or less, imagine a guy's working in his garage and he's working on a car. 
And he's like, I'm going to take this car apart, you know, take out a bunch of things, and I'm going to help clean and tune it up. But then let's say, uh-oh, my house is on fire right now. You know, well, <laughs> you can't drive out of there with your car because your car is taken apart. And that's kind of the exact same thing with Millennium Falcon is that Chewie and Han thought, all right, we're going to do all this right now. And because of that whole bad luck yeah, yeah, effect. Yeah, they probably figured, oh, we got a little bit of time. We can take our time, you know, getting everything fixed up to be optimal and... Yeah, and then the shit hit the fan. <laughs> Instead, it's like we're forced to drive our car right now <laughs> when we had half of it taken apart. It's running pretty horribly right well, yeah, now. Yeah, well, and it's... really, the state of the Millennium Falcon kind of drives a plot because, I mean, you know, from there they get, you know, they go into the asteroid field and they kind of land there and they go, okay, we can chill out here for a bit. And then they realize, oh crap, we can't because there's a big monster we're inside of. And from there they're like, okay, where can we stop to fix this silly thing? And they decide, okay, we'll go to this, you know, this guy Lando that I know, which obviously, you know, kind of goes south for him. Yeah, so essentially Empire Strikes Back is one giant car repair movie. Where, <laughs> yeah. Guys, we need to get this thing fixed. Where can we go? But, you know, it's just those interesting little tidbits right there just because of circumstance. You know, where, like, these guys thought they had a comfortable situation. What happened? Everything got kind of uprooted in the entire situation. So. Yeah. I, th- I think it's also interesting like how we were talking about the character development when you really mentioned Luke in that. I think and one way you could look at it, I think at the end, you know, he blows up the Death Star at the end of A New Hope. And I think after that he's kind of feeling like, whoa, I'm this super invincible guy and then he kind of goes through empire like yeah i'm gonna go get trained by this guy it's gonna be awesome he's kind of thinking that's gonna be great and then he realizes that you know this isn't all it's cracked up to be and he's like i gotta go save my friends and he gets his butt handed to him by vader i mean that whole that whole fight with vader at the end is basically just vader toying with him you know i mean he could, he could have killed him at any moment but obviously he didn't want to but it was just you, you know you can't it kind of knocked Luke down a couple pegs, which in his, you know, for for the character, he probably needed it because, you know, coming off what he did had before that movie. Now, I would almost say, kind of like, you know, some of the points brought up there, I think, if I were to have to sit there and criticize one of my favorite movies of all time, a few things that probably stick out to me is this. Now, it is time. You have a whole situation where you have Luke that goes to Dagobah, and I think where the movie gets really ambiguous is that you don't know how long he's been on Dagobah. The movie doesn't really do a good job of establishing passage of time. Like, yeah. They kind of have like a break hazard, haphazard like training montage where they keep showing Luke doing things on Dagobah. But then part of it is like, all right, well, how long are Han and Leia then out in space? Yeah, it's kind of ambiguous as far as has he been there a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months. Now, we'll assume that the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrives out, so guess what? It can't get anywhere it needs to instantly. So maybe over a course of a month... Maybe that's what happened, is that Luke was in Dagobah. While he was doing that, they are taking, you know, the Millennium Falcon, that minimal power, and just flying it slowly. <laughs> There's so three weeks of footage there of them just sitting there playing uh, playing the Dejaric table in the back, or that they just didn't show us because it would have been too boring. And, you know, maybe part of that, too, would also help establish how, you know, Han and Leia got closer because they had a lot of time together. And, you know, where it may have just been, like, you know, she was beginning the movie, her begrudgingly not... You know, trying to give it to Han, you know, show us how they develop. But Yeah, I think you can definitely speculate on it. But like you said, I think it's kind of the fact that you have to speculate and you have to kind of try and figure it out on your own. Like, oh, maybe maybe this happened. And even that's the thing is it's all just maybes. You know, that, that whole timeline kind of in the middle there is kind of just a little goofy. And I think the other thing that I think really doesn't hold up as much in Empire as time goes on is that where Luke was clearly the POV character and the first movie, Han is the POV character almost in the second one in many ways. Sometimes it feels, you know, when you watch Empire now, that the Luke parts on Dagobah sometimes drag a little bit more. Because 
he's getting, he's training, he's going through these things. But I think clearly the Han Solo storyline with Leia and them trying to escape the Empire is the more interesting story. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, if I'm watching this at home, I'm definitely, if I'm going to fast forward through parts, it's going to be the Luke on Dagobah parts. Like, okay, he's going in this creepy, weird cave and stuff's going to happen. It's, it's, you know, I think it's one of those things, once you've seen it once, you don't necessarily need to see it again. It kind of just, it, I wouldn't say it drags the movie down, but it's definitely not essential viewing once you kind of know, once you get the feel for it. Now... To, I think, the movie's credit itself, I do feel that Empire is the movie that was probably least harmed by the special editions. I don't think yeah. there was really anything that Lucas went in and gravely changed. No, I would, I would agree. I mean, they you know, they updated the Wampa, which I didn't think was horrible, but a lot of it, I think, was just cleaning up the special effects. I mean, Bespin, I think, arguably looks a lot better for it. I think they did a better job of establishing Bespin, and unlike, you know, what they did in the... You know, episode four, where they made Moss Eisley this overly busy place. Yeah. They just added some simple CGI yeah, to show they, that. Yeah, they hey, basically just put in windows that you could see outside what was going on. Which I think before it was just a solid wall because, you know, they just didn't have the technology to show you what was out there. Right. So I, I think it did a much subtler and better job of kind of showing that, hey, here's this more richer universe itself. So, you know, what what else to you do you feel didn't really hold up as well with Empire? I don't have a lot more. I mean, we've kind of hit a lot of it already. Um, I would say I think if you were to do it, if you were to remake this now, I think Lando, you'd have to almost pull off to him because he's essentially a space pimp, which, which don't get me wrong, Lando's freaking awesome. I mean, I think he's awesome as a space pimp, but I don't know that nowadays that would go over as well. I think we can kind of look back at that as rose, with rose-colored glasses because it was a different era and it was, you know, he's got a cape on, it's, you know... I mean, as much as people like to say that the times didn't really influence a lot of Star Wars, I think, you know, Lando stepped off of a disco floor, basically. I mean, and, no, you know, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing. No. It, doesn't, it doesn't hurt it for me, but I think if you were looking at that now, that's one thing that I think if you were to show it to somebody who hadn't seen it before, they'd be like, what's with this guy? I think Lando hit every cue perfectly. I mean, you take his attire out right there. First off, yeah, he worked the cape and he worked it well. <laughs> don't sit there and, like, criticize the cape. Well, he rocks the cape. Don't get me wrong. But I wouldn't even say that he's a pimp. I... You know, the one thing that, you know, the movie tries to establish is that, yeah, he used to be a scoundrel, but now he's trying to become a legitimate person and, you know, businessman and how he operates yeah. things. You know, and the whole, you know, way that they unveil the story that, hey, what he's doing, he's trying to do for Bestman's protection right there. You know, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying a pimp. Now you're saying, hey, he's hitting on Leia. Well, yeah, I mean, for Christ's sake, why wouldn't you hit on Leia at that point? <laughs> I mean, no, you got a guy you're talking to that basically won your ship from a game of champs, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, you're going to probably try to get your digs in where you can and try to take away what he cares about. So, Yeah, don't get me wrong. I like Lando. I just think if they were to like remake it today, I think Lando would probably get a pretty big overhaul. You know, Although maybe not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm alone in that. No, I, I, I think Lando was pulled off you know, perfectly. You know, I mean... I don't think there was really any characterization in the movie that really was done wrong. Every person, I think, they did a good job of building, establishing, going off from there. You know, other little tidbits, I think, to touch on in the movie that they did well. Going back to the theme from, you know, what we were talking about before about minor characters. They introduced a lot of great minor characters, such as, you know, the bounty hunters. Those guys were great additions to the movie yeah, itself. absolutely. You, had, you helped build on, let's say, Wedge. And, hey, you know what? He survived, you know, the Death Star. But guess what? He took down an Imperial Walker, too. So the guy's obviously yeah, pretty and you, good. Yeah. And you had the other, you know, the other uh, members of Rogue Squadron. You know, everybody's favorite Dak, who gets punked out right away, of course. Um, you yeah. know what? I never really knew how Dak died because part of me, like when I was younger, the reason I thought Dak died was because he was incompetent and accidentally did something and he effectively electrocuted himself. 
I thought that's how it was. And I don't know if I remember that from like the uh, comic adaptation. Or... Yeah, it's, in the movie, it's very ambiguous because something goes. He, he says something going wrong with the console, and it seems like he gets fried, and maybe he's just yeah. I don't, it's it's very kind of ambiguous as to what what ultimately you know. Maybe he didn't die until he well, got stepped on. I, don't I know. watched Empire a couple months back. When I watched Empire, it clearly shows that you know the snow speeder did get shot. And I didn't remember that way when I was younger, but you can sort of see where the snow speeder gets shot, and basically they imply he's dead. What I almost thought would be almost better is that if he wasn't dead, like when Luke was going to get like retrieve <laughs> no! his lightsaber and the Imperial Walker's going <laughs> to step on it, I always would have laughed hysterically if, like, you know, Dax like, what's going on? And Luke has to live with just the horrible regret that, oh, my God, I left him in there. Instead, I got this out instead, and... He's just a dead Well, you know, in the grand horse. scheme of things, what's more important, Dak or a lightsaber? I mean, really. And that's the thing. It's not like Luke's actions really did much. Like, the weird the weird part about the movie, like, in the Hoth battle, and you, you know what, I'm going to probably reference a few different things here. When they take down the first Imperial Walker, I was laughed in the sense that, you know, when that first Walker goes down because Wedge and Wes Jansen go ahead and harpoon and take it down, all the Rebels troops like, Let's go! Woo! And they start climbing out of their like you know trenches. Yeah, yeah that's like they just won the whole battle. Right. They start advancing, <laughs> even though you got like five other Imperial walkers <laughs> that are all just slowly trudging. Like, oh, you took that guy down. That's not a bigger thing. The other thing that it's always been one of my most amusing things ever to watch in that movie is right before General Veer oh, yes, blows I, up I, the power I, generator. <laughs> I was going to bring it up if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, is there? If you ever watch like Empire Strikes Back, you know they get to the point where like General Veer's goes maximum firepower and they blow up the generator. Right before he does that, there is a small scene where before it fires the shot that blows up the it's, generator. Yeah, it's, like, it's like an exterior shot of the AT-AT, and it shows him taking those... Basically shows him taking the shot, but as he's taking the shot, there's like this lone rebel trooper on the ground that he takes out in the same spread that he blows up the generator. It, right, it, just a guy just running. Yeah. It just a little pot shot, shoots the rebel first... Like, the guy's like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like they had a bet in the cockpit or something. He's like, hey, I bet you I can't, how, much you want, how many credits you want to put that I can get that guy in the same spread as the generator. And it's and we're probably not doing it justice. So just next time you watch it, just make sure you keep an eye out for that. But yeah, I, I think definitely with Empire, I think those are a lot of the reasons I love the movie itself is that it just did so many things well. The one thing we really haven't touched on, I guess, is the, the big reveal at the end with Vader, you know, being Luke's dad and... I'd say with one of those scenes, kind of, you know, as you kind of addressed earlier, you know, Luke gets thoroughly trashed by Vader, and for every reason, he should. And I think oh, yes. that goes it goes back to what I was saying about not knowing how much time has passed when Luke was on Dagobah. You know, it's like, all right, I spent like about a week or weeks with, you know, Yoda. With the Muppet on my back. <laughs> now I'm going to go ahead and try to take down a guy that obviously has decades of experience, and he just... Gets played as much yeah. As he I, I think if they had played it where Luke beat Vader, it would that would have been one of the things we would have looked back on and said, yeah, that that wouldn't have happened. Well, it even gets weirder is you know they make it just vicious. I mean, Luke gets just savagely beaten every part to the point that when he does get his hand cut off, you know that right there is just when you're a kid, it's like oh wow, <laughs> yeah. This sort of thing doesn't happen in my movies. The good guy's supposed to win, but he just got his hand cut off. <laughs> You know, and the other thing that often is kind of weird about that moment, too, is that, you know, Luke gets his hand cut off. You know, Vader's trying, you know, reveals that he's Luke's dad, and he's trying to get, you know, Luke to join him. Are we to believe that Luke tried to commit suicide during that scene when he allowed himself to fall off that platform? Yeah, and that's maybe one of those things that doesn't hold up. I mean, it's, that's certainly what it looks like. 
you know, because he couldn't have known that whatever kind of weird funky, and that's that's the thing is, what exactly did happen? There's got to be just some weird air currents going through there that carried him to wherever he was going, but that's certainly not something I'm sure he would have known. So, yeah, yeah, he must have just said, okay, this has been a pretty crappy day. I'm just, I'm done. <laughs> it, I would say that scene right there probably is more of Lucas's influence than Kirshner's influence in the sense like, Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Uh, he's going to go ahead and jump off. Uh, so he's committing suicide? No, he's not committing suicide. <laughs> he's going to jump off because then there's going to be this tube that he's going to go down like a slide, but, but does, it's going to open up. But does he know that that's down there? <laughs> and that, that is one of those scenes that really does feel kind of nonsensical in some ways, like how Luke got out of that situation itself. Yeah, and, yeah, and ends up on a weather vane, essentially. Right, he's, he's dangling <laughs> on like you know an upside-down weather vane for his entire life and everything. But And then we get one of the few instances of Leia using the Force, or, get, or getting a sense of the Force, at least, or something. Right, but, yeah, you know, between that, another part of the Bespin scene overlooked is just, you know, Harrison Ford's ad-libbing of, I know, being probably one of the more iconic yeah. things possible, and so, yeah, I mean, looking back, there's a lot of things that that movie did that I think that what our views of those characters are, I really feel come from Empire Strikes Back and all the good character development that happened in that movie. Yeah, definitely cemented a lot of that. So, any other talking points you want to talk about uh, Empire before we go on? or No, I believe we're good to go, or I'm good to go at least. Alright, well, it's, let's talk about Jedi. Alright, well, so... There's ever a black sheep in the Star Wars family. <laughs> now let me let me clarify. If there ever was a black sheep in the Star Wars family, it was always Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Fortunately, the prequels did everything in the world to make that look like an amazing masterpiece in so many different ways. And I think Return of the Jedi more often than not gets catches too much flack, you know, for what the movie you know does. Now it's not to say that there's not flaws in the movie. I feel that there's some egregious flaws, but there are things it does really well. What are your uh, earliest memories of, you know, Return of the Jedi? For me, this is one, like, I remember seeing this one in a movie theater as well, and this is this is the one where I actually, like, I remember distinctly parts of it. The part I remember most is at the end when Luke is, you know, when the Emperor is basically slow-cooking Luke. You know, I, I was legitimately concerned, and, you know, part of that might have been because, you know, hey, this guy got his hand chopped off, maybe, you know, maybe they'll kill him too. I mean, it just... It, I think that scene was just, you know, the way it was acted out, the way it was directed and cut together. You know, you really felt for Luke, you know, where he's just, he's literally powerless. And, you know, the only thing that can save him is Vader, which, you know, ends up happening. But I think that's one part I remember walking out of the theater and that scene just resonating with me. And I think along with that, I mean, most of my memories, I think, just kind of come from this era. Because, I mean, I would have been, you know, a fair amount older. You know, I was probably eight or nine when this came out. And, you know, so most of the my memories probably are from this this general area so i have a fairly fond memory and i'm probably a little bit more easier on this movie than than some people are yourself included <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, I with this movie this was definitely one of the uh, movies that i remember seeing multiple times in the theater i remember seeing it at uh, harmar mall i remember seeing it at signal hills those are local malls around us and you know i i remember all all in all loving the movie as a kid you know and I think the reason why it was easy, this movie's easy to love as a kid, and in many ways, I think it's kind of one of its greatest points that this movie is able to establish is that this is, you know, Jedi is a great action movie in many different ways. There's one thing that Jedi excelled at was being that. Now, 
That being said, you know, you had nonstop action. Does have a few dragging moments. And I, I think the moments that it does drag is when they try to force characterization. And ironically enough, I feel those moments tend to involve Luke. But touching more on that later, I think, you know, you had a lot of things in the movie that, you know... Remember my earlier complaint about, you know, how Star Wars wasn't the first one, wasn't able to establish a grand scale of things. This one, the technology was there to do it. You look at the second Death Star battle, and it's just this sprawling, just yeah, huge sh- battle. Yeah, ships are everywhere. And, and it, it feels like it has a nice organic flow to it. It's not like, you know, later on when you watch, like one way that I can compare that is uh, episode three. You watch the beginning where it has this massive space war, but it's just so busy and it's impossible to track what's going on. You know, you just have so many different things that it's, you could watch that scene several times, whereas... You're, yeah, you're not sure where your eyes are supposed to be going. Right. Whereas I feel with, you know, the second Death Star battle, you could watch it several times and the action focus is exactly what it needs to be on. It's still a very epic battle that's going on, but... It's not something you're sitting there like feel like you're missing anything. You you're very intent in knowing what's going on during that entire scene itself. You know there were some parts. Once again, being a wuss of a kid, I was kind of always spooked on, and that was like the Rancor monster. Like, oh no, there's yeah. this giant monster, and you know that was you know one of those things. I remember just being kind of burned into memory, my memory as a kid. But you know there there was a lot of things this movie attempted. I think. The one thing that this movie also, and this became, I think, a big issue at the beginning of where Lucas's issues and the prequels were, is I feel this movie was trying to be something for everyone, and that is probably one of the bigger reasons why it has problems holding up as time goes on. And, I mean, how do, how do you feel about what I'm saying about that? I definitely see where you're coming from, and I think I'm a lot softer on this movie because I have such fond memories for it. I mean, like, a lot of people have a problem with the Ewoks at the end and how, you know, how could they have really, you know, defeated this technological empire with their sticks and stones and logs and whatnot. And and looking back, I mean, you know, obviously, yes, they probably shouldn't have been able to, but it it just doesn't bother me as much, and I don't know if that's because growing up as a kid, you know, like, I remember it so fondly. Um, I don't even feel that the Ewoks bother me. I mean, that's... That was always the traditional criticism of Return of the Jedi. It's like, oh, you know, Lucas was just thinking about yeah, the toys. You know, he's going to put a bunch of easily, cuddly, marketable little things in there. I don't have a problem with that. You know, uh, I mean, I think to touch on probably why I feel this movie holds up, and it's a point I made earlier, I feel this is a great action movie. And I feel yeah. that it's almost in the vein of this movie almost being one of the true signs of a summer blockbuster. Like, you look at most yeah, summer blockbusters, you got a lot of, like, giant special effects. Yeah, this, you this have... is very much a visual spectacle. I mean, you've got Jabba's palace at the beginning. It's a, you know, it's for the most part, it's a fairly bright set. You've got, you know, the, his palace is a lot more well-lit than, like, the Mos Eisley spaceport was, for example. And, you know, all these aliens to look at. And then you get to Endor, which is this, you know, forest with all these trees, and it's green, and it's this lush, you know, environment. And... You know, it's a lot more visual spectacle, I think, and the action sequences are a lot more well-defined and, you know, fairly easy to follow. Right, I mean, you look at, you know, you look at Luke being able to fight with the lightsaber. That was probably one of the first times he ever actually did that. I mean, when you watch, like, the first Star Wars, he has a lightsaber, doesn't do anything with it. You watch Empire, he fights Vader with it, but he 
pretty yeah, much yeah, thoroughly he, gets yeah. beaten up. He may as well have his baseball bat. Right. <laughs> when you watch Return of the Jedi, you see him actively using a lightsaber, and it's one of those moments that you sit there and think, man, that's awesome. He's actually using it. Yeah. He's taking people down. You take a look at, you know, the battle on both Endor and the Battle of the Death Star, and there's, you know, just great battle scenes. Even on Endor, like the speeder bike chase, that was always an amazing scene. Right. You know, and how they... I remember as a kid, they always used to have, like, uh, the special and how that movie was made. You see, like, how they filmed that entire scene itself. I mean, Lucas, you know, had the technology and knew exactly what to do with it. And I think one of the greatest strengths of the movie, it isn't the action. The action does everything amazingly well. I mean, what else do you feel that Jedi does really well in that sense? Um, it's tough to say. I mean, it, it, I think, like you said, the special effects are great. Um, because I think at this point they kind of realize, you know, okay, this isn't a flash in the pan. You know, we can spend some money on this and make everything look great at, you know. Um... It's tough to say. I'm kind of drawing a blank exactly what... Um... I, I think that's the thing, is that you, if we simplify it, yeah, it's a great action movie. Now, if you were to go to the criticism of it, I think one of the biggest problems this movie has, and it's a problem that Lucas has maintained to this day, is that the story and plotting is rough. I mean, they're, the story is probably very nonsensical in so many different ways when you think about, you know, how everything happens and unfolds on there. Like, you know... One of my criticisms you know of is just Luke's plan at the beginning. <laughs> you know, Luke's plan is like, I'm going to let all my friends get captured, and then through weird happenstance, I'm going to unfortunately have yeah. R2-D2 give me my lightsaber. See, see, and I would argue it's more he's got like a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, you know, and like him coming in and doing whatever is, you know, what ends up happening is probably like plan, you know, K or something like that, you know. And I think I think he had all these fail-safes put in that just, for whatever reason, you know, like maybe Leia wasn't supposed to go, you know, she got a little impulsive and went and released Han before she was supposed to, before it was 100% safe, and, you know, okay, she got captured, so now I've got to go in and save Leia, and, you know, I, I didn't think it was more fail-safe, but it, it's definitely, when you kind of look at it, definitely looks to be very convoluted and well, odd. It's I think a lot of it feels just convoluted and odd. I think one of my biggest criticisms of this movie is that all the characters' actions that they do all seem bent and geared towards just moving the movie along to the next progressive step. Instead of having a movie that unfolds in a natural way, it feels like the characters are doing their actions because we need to get to this point. So to get to this point, well, I guess these characters need to do their. So you look at that whole scene, you know, early in the movie where Luke, you know, gets his lightsaber and takes down, helps take down Jabba the Hutt. It felt like in order to get to that scene, Lucas said, all right, I'm going to have all these things happen but only just to help build to this scene right here. You know, right. the same thing when you take a look at, like, you know, at the end with, like, the battle with the Ewoks. It's like, I'm going to have all these things happen just so I can get to this scene where I have all the Ewoks fighting this. And you see the characters' actions, I wouldn't say acting unnaturally or out of character, but it feels like each character is kind of just getting pushed towards... Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it's a little forced. All right, it, it feels forced and everything. I think the other thing that bugs me which is one of my criticisms once again from empire is the whole time thing so you have luke skywalker you know one of the things that seemed cool about jedi is that you have luke he seems now confident capable he comes into like you know the beginning of the movie like i am now just jedi that's you know able to do what i can but here's where things get really muddy and what star wars doesn't establish well 
how much time passed would you say between episode yeah. five and episode six? And it's yeah, that's one of those gray areas where we just we don't know. And they've done you know, there's been a lot of you know expanded universe stuff where they've done novels and stuff in there, but I don't think it's ever really been specifically nailed down as in would you say it's six, you know a couple of months? Would you say it's several months? I would, would guess you? you know I mean just and this is just me ballparking off the top of my head maybe six months. You know, four to six months, maybe. It, it's hard because you you sit there and think, here's a guy that just went through an entire traumatic experience. He had his hand cut off the end of Empire Strikes Back, yet he's able to get a new hand, learn how to master it well, and all of a sudden masters a lot of the aspects of the Force that has never been established that he was able to master beforehand. Yeah, and I, well, and I think, too, that's one thing that I never really noticed as a kid watching it, but I think as an adult, you know, I've kind of heard people mention is that at the beginning of that movie, the first time you see Luke, he's dressed in black, and he's using, like, the force choke on those Gamorrean guards, and it's like, you know, you're like, holy crap, did Luke, you know, did he go bad after, you know, in between, in, the, in this time span that, you know, this, that we don't know what happened, did, you know, did he start to kind of veer towards the dark side, and, you know, obviously we know he didn't, but, you know. Well, and, you know, the other things that make it very weird in the sense, too, is that in terms of how much time's passed, is that you have the second Death Star that's been constructed. So now you have this Death Star that's been constructed, how much time has passed? How long does it take to build a Death Star? And was that Death Star being built well into Empire? And yeah, that, it, that's yeah, that's another tricky thing. I mean, obviously, you know, as you build anything, if you're going to build a second one, you're going to be able to take the experiences you had from that first one. You're not going to have you know, you're not going to run into the same problems as much when you're building a second one. So it's you know, I get you. I'll give you. It's going to take less time. Yes, I mean, building a second Death Star, you're not you know, you're going to be like, okay, we're building basically the exact same thing as before. You know, maybe you know, maybe it's a little bit bigger and whatever, but it's essentially the same thing. So you know, a lot of those things you had to kind of do trial and error on the first one. You're not going to have to do, but I mean, even still, though, something on that scale is going to take a heck of a long time. It, it would take a long time, and I think the other hard thing too is that let's say let's flip the argument here. Let's say that a lot of time passed between you know Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Then the problem is, is that do they just leave Han dangling in the wind? <laughs> He's good to go. He's in hibernation. Right. You know, it's one of those things that you know that, all right, Boba Fett, he's doing a bounty. You know who he's doing the bounty for. Right. You know that Han's, you know, probably with Jabba the Hutt because Jabba the Hutt put the bounty out on him. So, you know, that's even more messed up. It's like, hey, we know where he is. But the problem is, is we're not going to address or take care of any of this for a period of time. Another... Uh, ugly time factor that comes into play too is that Luke after you know he rescues Han I gotta go back to Dagobah to finish his training so that establishes that alright did he ever go back to Dagobah before you know that like after like Empire was he ever there before and then you get back to Dagobah and you have where alright Yoda's on his deathbed all of a sudden you got a guy that's I've been alive for 800 years yeah. and all of a sudden Yoda's ready to die at that point you know so you can live to be 800, but if you live to be 801, well, sorry, that's a little too long. <laughs> You've right got a there. very specific time clock on that race of Yodas. <laughs> but I, I think that's where just so much of it gets muddied where, you know, as I said, great action movie. But if you think about the plot and the details, a lot of it doesn't Yeah, I think it's sense. one of those if you, 
if you hyperanalyze those, you know, Luke's plan, the timeline, and, and some of those things, you know, you know, would the Ewoks be able to, you know, actually pull that off at the end, you know? Right, you have, like, all I these mean, traps the Ewoks set up for yeah. the Empire. Once again, that's, that's like, a time thing right there. How yeah. much time does it take to do that? You don't want to sit there and think the Empire's just sitting there watching these yeah, teddy bears. twiddling their thumbs. There's just two stormtroopers <laughs> just sitting there like, hey, that guy's uh, tying a log yeah, over what, there. what do you think they're doing with that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's going to affect us whatsoever, and... So, yeah, time, I think, is... And I, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I feel that Lucas had an idea, I want these things to happen, but in order for these things to happen, I'm going to force these developments or just make them happen for the sake of happening to help move the story along itself. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's, you know, it's very enjoyable. I, you know, I don't generally have a problem with it. It's a fun one for me to watch, but I think, yeah, I think if you do take a hard look at it critically like that, you know, look at those aspects... Definitely doesn't hold up as well as the other ones, I don't think. And I think one of my last major criticisms, kind of the opposite of what something I said was, you know, a problem with the first Star Wars, is that the first Star Wars, Episode Four, you know, I criticized as trying to not have a grand sense of feel. But the problem is, is they didn't have the ability to show it. They, I think, with the Return of Jedi, Lucas had the resources, he had everything to show a grand thing. But then Lucas makes weird choices by deciding to make the world smaller. And what I mean by making the world smaller is that, you know, with Return of the Jedi, going back to that whole Han being captured thing, Han was a member, of course, of the Rebellion. You know, if he gets captured, the Rebellion, really all they got to do is just come and take siege of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. send in a couple squads and just, yeah, take over the palace, essentially. Instead, you have this weird, elaborate heist plan that's been set up that just involves the core characters. All the characters that have been... We're going to send in all our most important people. Right, if you're a military operation, well, let's see, we got uh, General Leia Organa right here. She's a general, but we're going to let her try to go and do a risky mission right here. Yeah, we're going to let her take out some important, you know, some well-known bounty hunter, apparently. <laughs> go, go in under his guise. Right, it, it takes all the characters, and as I said, it, it feels like that forced character development, like, hey, we need this, we're just going to use these characters. You get later into the movie when they have, like, the whole scene where they're you know, having, like, the War Council, the Rebel War Council, where they're trying to establish, you know, the second Death Star and what they're going to do as a plan. Hey, we need a command team. Well, guess what? Let's get all the familiar characters <laughs> back together. I mean, it's it's weird that you have these characters that they call General Solo, General, you know, Organa. Right. You know, but then you take all these main characters and you just put them together. It makes the world feel smaller in some ways. Yeah, like, you'd you you wouldn't, you'd think with all the support, you know, I mean, you've got Admiral Akbar, you've got all these other high-ranking people we hadn't seen before. You'd think there'd be somebody else, you know, there's got to be somebody more qualified than Lando to fly, you know, fly the lead on the assault for the Death Star. I mean, They, you know, they no, never did establish that Lando was a great pilot. Now, they did establish that Lando owned the Millennium Falcon. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he knew what he was doing, but, I mean, there had to have been somebody who, you know, was the better pilot. Well, not only that, but it has experience leading an entire fleet. Right, yeah. You're taking, essentially, a guy that was a scoundrel that eventually decided to maneuver his way into becoming a president or leader yeah, of yeah, an entire, you know, of, you know, of Bespin. Then all of a sudden, those qualifications allow him to actually, hey, we're going to have you in charge of our entire, you know, aerial <laughs> yeah. fleet at that point when you already have other characters I mean, involved. heck, I would think Wedge would have been better suited to that than he would have been. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's true. It just kind of gets weird some of the choices that they made in order just to validate that, hey, here's why all our main characters are together. 
Sure, you can have them together, and obviously they're going to be the stars of the movie, but it doesn't make sense, the reasoning you have. Yeah. It'd be different if, like, you know, if you just have one of those characters be an important member of the Rebellion, and the others were kind of lesser-known characters and focused on the first one, but, you know, that's that's kind of the weird direction it kind of took, is that, you know, Luke has made a big world, but then he decided to make it very small by just only narrowing that focus on these key characters right there, which is kind of weird itself, but... What other issues did you have, if any, about Jedi? Um, my, the two minor ones, fairly, and it, one of them involved. Well, they both actually kind of involved the special editions. One is the the new music scene that they decided to put in Jabba's palace. Just I don't, it, I don't acknowledge those. It, we're, we're talking about <laughs> you, the original what? trilogy. <laughs> don't bring no that that is garbage. And, the, and that's yes, I mean, and that's you know, again, that's more a problem with the special editions. That I think the original music scene I think worked perfectly. Then he put in this new weird like music video version, and it just. The less said about it, the you know, better probably. So just, I don't think it fit at all. And then uh, the other one that got added into the Blu-ray edition is the is when Vader picks up the Emperor and he gives out that it's it's almost like they cut and paste the no no from the end of the episode three. I think it it worked a lot better. I think with having Vader just kind of quietly calmly like okay this is this is what i'm doing i'm basically gonna th- you know throw away this whole leading the galaxy thing and and go save my thought it was kind of more like a quiet this is what has to be done and it just made it weird where he just you know no and picks up the emperor and throws it, it just it is kind of weird that despite the fact that jedi was the last movie and lucas had the most resources to make it that was probably the movie that he tampered the most with in terms of the special editions and what he's changed on it. I mean, that, I mean, for all the changes that, let's say, the you know original Star Wars had, probably the biggest changes was mostly just Moss Eisley and some of the special effects. But there yeah, really yeah. wasn't that much dramatically changed. Empire didn't really feel like much was touched on that, just some touch-ups and adding of effects, but... For some reason, he went just nuts on Jedi. Just yeah, added, added the music number. He updated the Sarlacc, which didn't bother me as much. I mean, that's a fairly minor. You know, I could have looked past that, but you know, and then the you know that thing with Vader at the end. Well, I think part of it, like sometimes, what Jedi Return of the Jedi feels to me, it almost feels like a kid, and he's got Legos and he builds something, but then he has all these leftover Legos and. He feels obligated that I got to make sure I use every last Lego to build this. <laughs> but the problem is, is it, it instead of it being just a simple thing like that kid was building a car, but now this car all of a sudden just has like also weird it's got parts. A, also, it's got a flag coming off, off the back of it, and there's a jet engine on top for some reason. <laughs> it, it's just overkill. Just because you have all of those parts doesn't mean you have to use those parts to be able to make that. I right. That's I think. That's the biggest part, I think, of Return of the Jedi in terms of legacy of Lucas. That that right there, you could definitely see where he went off the, you know, kind of was going off the deep end in terms of. I don't even want to say that he's going off the deep end being a perfectionist. I, it's it's hard to interpret why, you know, it's one thing to sit there and say that, that, that we lied's madness trying to figure out what's going on in Lucas's head. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand completely. Like, hey, I want to go back and kind of you know make some effect changes here and there. You know, and there's been some other older movies that, you know, have been minor touch-ups here, but a lot of times some of those touch-ups is just to clean up the movie, clean up the colorization of old black and white movies. Never has there been an individual that has sat there and said, I need to dramatically alter. Yeah, it's pretty rare. And not only dramatically alter, it's not all those things that he's touching up. I mean, you're right. He he deleted out an well, entire just, music number. Just and, flat out change. I mean, you know, we haven't even gotten into the whole did shot, you know, Han shooting first thing, which, you know, I mean, it's, 
yeah, he, he altered them in a way that I don't think is probably fairly unprecedented in you know the history of movies. It, it's kind of like it's somebody that just became bored and sat there and says, well, what do I want to do with this now? Maybe it would be better if I did this. It was just the fact that despite the movie being finished, he just kept tinkering with it. And, yeah, and, and I, I think it's it's one of those I think where most, and I think it's be, probably partly because he actually owns these movies, where I think a lot of filmmakers they you know they make the movie, but ultimately that movie belongs to you know whoever Fox or Paramount, so they can't you know they, there's very little they can do with it. Whereas Lucas kind of had that carte blanche, well these are mine, I can do whatever I want, you know. So whereas other filmmakers, once you put it out there and release it, that's for the most part that's it. Whereas he kind of since he owned these. He, he suddenly realized, you know, like, you know, what's to stop me from going back and updating these effects and adding in the scene and, you know, Well, whatever. and it's different. Like, there has been some movies, like, there's movies where there's director's cuts where, hey, we're going to put this deleted scene back in that maybe we didn't do before and you haven't because maybe it was a time thing, but you know what? Yeah, because the studio has cut down to a certain time frame or But whatever. it works. In this case right there, I mean, in Return of the... And out of all three Star Wars movies in the original trilogy, there's really only one scene that was added back in. And that was in the uh, first Star Wars. That's the scene yeah, where they yeah, Jabba added Hutt. Jabba. They digitally put him over like a man actor that was yeah, originally yeah, done. That scene is just awkward. Well, that scene is awkward too just because of the whole fact that at the end of the scene you got Boba Fett that stops, looks at the camera like nudge, <laughs> hey nudge. Hey, hey guys, I'm Boba me. Fett. <laughs> hey, remember me? I'm the guy you think that's cool. You know, so I mean that's... It, it is weird some of the choices that Lucas has done when it comes to the special effects. And those, you know, special effects and the special editions, I mean, those came, were re-released, what, uh, 97? I think, yeah, I think so, yeah. So, I mean, that's about 14 years after Star Wars was, you know, they, he stopped making effective Star Wars movies. Although he was, at the time, in the process of making the prequels at that time. Yeah, they could, yeah, the... Special editions were basically like a test run and to get some wanting to get some money. I'm sure to to make the prequels. I don't know if it was a test run for making the prequels. I think part of it was, you know, use because if that came out in '97, really, I, I think the filming process was it two or three years for making uh, the Phantom. Episode Menace? one, it was released in '99, and it had to have been the tur- the turnaround back then wasn't quite as quick. So they were probably filming it. Fav- Pretty much right, right after the special editions came out. Anyway. I'm sure somebody's gonna probably, you know, you know, email or leave a message for us saying, "Well, oh, here, yeah. here's what really happened." You know, yeah. If but, I wanted to, I could pull up my phone and look up when production started in episode one. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how well prepared we are. Let's <laughs> let's Wikipedia during our own podcast right here to try to find the information out. But but I mean, I, I think that's part of it. Is and I I think maybe that's just what created a lot of the same mentality of why, you know, he did the choices did with the prequels because like, well, I can do whatever I want because with technology, anything's possible. Yeah. Yeah, kind of one of those, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. So, a few other things I think, you know, to touch on in terms of, you know, Star Wars. Uh, you know, we've covered all three movies. I think, you know, we've kind of gone through. I think we've agreed on a lot of the same points. I think... The you know, one thing that I don't think we agreed on was Lando being a pimp. And that, <laughs> I, I still, to this day, feel that, no, Lando's Lando. Leave that alone. A uh, few quick uh, touching points right here, you know, to talk on. Uh, talking points and such on. Uh, the toys. I, with the toys itself, I think one of the things that made those toys great with Star Wars is that they had such a rich cast of characters and toys I feel that the Star Wars play yeah. sets were probably some of the best play sets, not only through probably, let's say, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, but I even think those play sets held up even well over time itself. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, and it, and, you know, and we could do a whole other podcast on just the merchandising of Star Wars and how it went, but I think, yeah, I mean, I remember looking at just the back of the cards that the action figure would come on, because it had a, a huge, it had a picture of pretty much every action figure. There were like 40 or 50 action figures on the back of this thing. I remember looking at it and be like, oh, cool, wouldn't it be cool to get this guy in? Who's this guy here? So you kind of see all these characters, and I think part of that is what kind of fueled also the young me, like, oh wow, there's a rich universe, and the reason why there's a rich universe, here's all of these toys here that you know what these are characters, and you know, I, there's always those characters that you knew nothing about. So guess what? Oh, yeah, you, you gave them their own backstory. Like I don't know who this guy is, but guess what? Well, more yeah, and more often than not, those are the characters that you know, like I ended up with because you know you'd go to the store and you'd end up having to buy like the clearance ones so you know of course all the good you know most of the good Han and Luke's and whatever Darth Vader were gone so you know oh I've got Nine Numb here oh goody and Ewok that I've you know all these weird characters so I was like okay well, if that's what I'm stuck with I guess I gotta figure out how to use them and make them cool I, I think that is probably the one of the kind of the big issues though when you have you know 40 characters in a toy line is that yeah, obviously everybody's going to buy the popular ones. You could always tell, like, you know, how bad a birthday or a Christmas was going to go or, you know, whatever holiday, you know, where you get gifts would be going if, like, oh, look, guys, I got a Tebow. All right, Tebow. And, and I will say my family was not by any means well off, so I, I've got, but I've got to give props to, like, my parents, my grandparents, because somehow I ended up with, like, all the coolest I got, you know, I had the Millennium Falcon, I had the Rancor, I had the Ewok Village, I had the Adat. So, I mean, I don't know if they just saved up all their money and were like, hey, let's just buy John all these cool Star Wars toys. But, I mean, I had, like, all of the cool marquee, you know, vehicles and figures and whatnot. I, don't, I, don't I, I had most off. all the, you know, a lot of the cool play sets. I also had the Millennium Falcon. I had a Snow Speeder. You know, I had the Ewok Village. Most of those were sold at garage sales, and yeah, that's yeah. that's the depressing thing is a lot of those play sets were sold, and I no longer have. I still have a bin where I still have a majority of a lot of my original figures. Yeah, and I will say that's one thing is I still have like all of mine. Some of them are in better shape than others, but one of these Christmases, my kids are or birthdays. My kids are going to get the best. They're just going to get like six Rubbermaids full of just you know here, guys. Here's you know three hundred action figures and. 12 vehicles and whatnot. <laughs> if I were to say there's probably one thing that did not hold up over, you know, with the toy line, it was probably one of the most elaborate toy lines ever to be released. And it was one of those things that really helped build Lucas's corners, you know, the cornerstone of his empire. But when you look back, I think the one thing that doesn't hold up that is the lack of articulation, as an example. You had a lot yeah. of characters, stiff arms and legs. And G.I. Joe, which would come out years later. And think, yeah, and I think that's more. It's more a limitation of the time, you know, where the, you know, the detail just wasn't, you know, I mean, if you look at action figures now, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy compared, you know, when you look at those vintage ones, it's, you know, like you said, the articulation and whatnot. I think it was just, it was more a product of the time, but it's It it was a product of the time, like, and a great example, like, you know, any of the characters that had lightsabers had the hollow arm where the lightsaber came out of pretty much. Yeah, as opposed to being a separate, separate piece itself. And a lot of those flaws were all corrected when they started making Star Wars toys again in the 90s. The Star Wars toys in the 90s, granted, they had, took them a time to kind of refine it down. But, you know, you got better detail. You started getting the characters with the articulation and everything. But, you know, that was probably one of the first early toy lines. I mean, if I had to sit there and think about, you know, toy lines that I played with the most, Star Wars was easily number yeah. one, one of the biggest ones. And even look at what other toy lines were competing with Star Wars around that time. You know... Pre eighty three, you had things like He Man as an example, which was yeah. There was there wasn't a lot though. Cause, I mean, I would argue Star Wars almost toys. You know, set the bar for like you know this is 
this is what your toy line should be. And I think a lot of the stuff that came out, you know, I mean, at the time, I, you know, they probably had little to no competition for, you know, Star action Wars figure had, toys. Star Wars had toys that were being re- released well into about 1985. That's where I remember, like, you know, the movie came out in 80, you know, obviously in May of 83. And they still kept putting out toys. They still rode a lot of the merchandise. Yeah, for a good couple of years. I think where things kind of segued out and where Star Wars lost its steam was because of some of the newer toy lines. Because, you know, 82, 83, 84 is when you started having G.I. Joe, yeah, started G. having G. Transformers, and you know, Voltron. Yeah, yeah. You had a lot more Ninja different Ninja toys. Turtles, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, toys itself, I think, was definitely one of the things that. A lot of the reasons why toys are the way they are nowadays is because of everything Lucas did back then. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's get close to wrapping this up. Let's do a few quick hits here. There's other things that came out of Star Wars to some things not really good, some things <laughs> pretty bad. You know, as an example, like Star Wars foray into TV. Now, I. One thing, obviously, is the forbidden, you know, holiday special that nobody yes, else and talks I, about. I, and, and I, me and you watched that together, I think, didn't we? Oh, yeah. We did. I, I, I'm kind of proud to say that I have a copy of it at home, and it's, for anybody listening, if you've heard how bad it is and you're thinking there's no way it could possibly be that bad, it's just one of those things that, no, no, it's exactly as bad as you have heard, and it, and probably worse, it's... It, it is nigh unwatchable almost. <laughs> Essentially watching the holiday special is the equivalent of having like about a 55-year-old uncle while you're as still a kid trying to tell you a Star Wars story when he knows absolutely nothing about Star yeah. Wars. All, all he knows is he's got some pictures uh, of the characters. And there's, a, there's, there's a very Solo, right, yeah. there's a Luke. Uh, yeah, they're going to do, the, uh, I'm going to put B. Arthur, B. Yeah. Arthur's in there. It's, uh, just, it's just a horrible hodgepodge and probably, you know, I mean... Probably the less said about it, the better. I, th- I want to say it's on YouTube even, so you could probably go watch it on YouTube, or at least clips of it at least on YouTube if you know that's something you want to inflict upon yourself. The other weird thing that came out of Return of the Jedi, I think this is maybe part of the reason why there is more resentment towards Ewoks, is they made two made-for-television Ewok movies. Now, the first one was just pure direct. It was just a weird... Yeah, there was Caravan was- of Courage and... Then the Battle for Endor. Yeah, Battle for Endor. So the first one is pretty much just like family that's living on like Endor. I don't know if they ever established once again when this movie happened. If it was after the Empire Strikes, yeah, I'm not sure. Return the Jedi, and and I sadly only as I have them on home at DVD. But a lot of shit. But but yes, but but I don't think I've watched them since I bought. Like I watched them back in the day as a kid. And I remember back then liking them, probably just because I was a kid and it had Ewoks and hey, this is new Star Wars, but. I'm sure if I were to watch them, you know, when I get home, they would probably not hold up at all. <laughs> the Battle for Endor, though, that whole... There's two weird things about that one. First and foremost is that in the opening moments of the movie, they kill the entire little girl's family from the first movie. There's a bunch of, I don't know, pirates. It's the, it's the Empire Strikes Back of the Ewok TV movies. I mean, there's like a bunch of pirates that raid... I, I can't remember, vaguely remember like the premise, but... They basically take the cute little girl from the first movie, kill her. Like, she watches her mom and her dad and her brother all get killed in front of her. And then an Ewok takes her to the second odd choice, Wilford Brimley. Yeah, they were just, they were odd movies from, again, what I remember, but... I mean, this was this was about 85, 86, and Wilford Brimley was probably, like, living high from, you know, his money from <laughs> Cocoon and Remo Williams, the adventure begins, but... Yeah, those were things that I think were Lucas probably thought, hey, I can maybe help sustain you know my empire by doing these things. 
I would say there's a the probably the main reason why that there wasn't new movies made for as long as there were is because of those miscues right there. <laughs> that could very well be. Other things that also were out around that came out around that time too. Uh, cartoons they had a droids and an Ewok cartoon as well. They did, and I, I can honestly say that's one of the few things of Star Wars I've never I've never seen a single episode of either one. I did just oddly enough recently get a copy of the droids on DVD off eBay a couple months back primarily to watch with the kids but i have yet to put it in yeah it's i i watched the ewok cartoon but i never really watched the droids one i think part of it is is that from what i understand you know trying to have a movie a cartoon that focuses on c3po and r2d2 didn't really appeal to me as much the ewoks held my attention for a period of time but those once again those i think that was kind of I wouldn't say the death rattle of some of like Lucas, Lucas's attempts to try to sustain and keep it going on, but definitely didn't help. And from a comic standpoint, they had a Marvel comics made and produced a lot of the Star Wars comics. They did an original adaptation of uh, the first Star Wars uh, movie, Episode Four: New Hope. Matter of fact, from a statistical standpoint, their licensing and apt adaptation of that movie is what saved Marvel Marvel comics. They were struggling. You wouldn't be seeing any Marvel movies right now if it wasn't for the fact that they decided yeah. to make an adaptation of that uh, Star Wars back in the late 70s, early 80s. That saved them from the brink of bankruptcy. They made it and continued into an ongoing series where they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what Lucas No, they had some do. very strange tangents in there. And I've read... Jackster! Jackster, the green bunny rabbit bounty hunter guy who seems like a very odd choice and... And I will say, I mean, the Star Wars comics were one of the first comics I remember getting as a kid. It's probably, you know, part of the reason I'm a big comics nerd today. But, it, yeah, they did make some very odd choices. There's a few good issues in there here and there. I think it went for a little over 100 issues. But it's, you know, it's kind of looked at, as, you know, as kind of a quaint little artifact of the time. It's certainly not, like, regarded as, like, one of the best runs of comics of anything. It's, you know, it's kind of seen as, you know, hey, this was kind of cool. You know, and there's some nice bits here and there, but it's, you know... I mean, they did adapt Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi in comic form yes. as well for, you know, the entire series run of that. And, you know, I, I agree. That's one of the things that definitely got me into comics itself. But I think a lot of it, too, you know, I they just add, recently added uh, all the Star Wars comics on a subscription service called Marvel Unlimited, where it's pretty much Netflix for comics where you can go back and read a lot of various old Marvel comics. I started rereading through a lot of the original Star Wars comics. You know, you get past, like, the main movies that they adapt in the comics. It kind of really reads like, guys, somebody's fan fiction, pretty much, where, <laughs> yeah. you know... And granted, yeah, there was writers that wrote it up and everything else, but it just it feels kind of weird and out of place. Yeah, I've read bits and pieces of it, and, and some of it's pretty tough to get through. Yeah, it's it definitely is odd. I mean... The other company that also did Star Wars comics after Marvel was Dark Horse, and they did a lot of various adaptations of novels and other things. And yeah, they had quite a few in there. To date, they've probably got the, they've got the largest chunk of Star Wars comics out there. They they were kind of around. They put out one of the comics called Dark Empire, which was kind of partly responsible for the resurgence of Star Wars in the early nineties. Um, which actually that was originally supposed to be put out by Marvel, um, but after a while they put out just dozens and hundreds of miniseries and regular series and by and large it was very hit or miss there was some stuff that was very very good there was some stuff that was also very very bad so it's, you got to kind of go through that and pick and choose and you know see what's good and what's not 
But yeah, I mean, there was enough things that I think Dark Horse did that really the reason why, and I agree, that Star Wars is still surging today is because of the stories now. A lot of the stories that were done by Dark Horse Comics are no longer canon, and what that just means is that, you know, Marvel, you know, the Marvel comic, or who, you know, comics back then, the Dark Horse ones, they're not considered official parts of the history of the Yeah, for a long time, all the novels and all the comics and video games were all, for the most part, officially part of the Star Wars. You know, what happened to Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars comics is the same Luke Skywalker as the movies is the same in the books. And They, they did that because they basically said, well, we don't want to have too much baggage, you know? I mean, yeah, when Disney bought it, they essentially came out and said, okay, with a couple of small exceptions, none of this happened, which was a very divisive thing with fans because obviously a lot of fans were... Very invested in the characters that got introduced in the expanded universe and whatnot, but that's, again, a whole other topic that we could spend all day talking about. Right, so, you know, wrapping up, I would say this, you know, do you feel the original Star Wars trilogy holds up? I think it definitely does. I mean, you can... That's the only answer you can give. Yes, I mean, like we've, you know, I mean, it's... There's a reason that, you know, The Force Awakens came out this last year and was, you know, one of the biggest movies of all time. I mean, if it wasn't, you know essentially riding on the coattails of the original trilogy, I mean, it's, you know, you know, and that's what one pe- thing people said about it was it was very reminiscent. It had a lot of, the, you know, it, fit, it felt like the original trilogy is kind of what a lot of people said, you know, down to, you know, some people saying that it was almost a copy of A New Hope, but that's another, you know, that's another story. But I think, you know, wouldn't, you know, Star Wars wouldn't have half of a toy aisle dedicated to it and, you know, pretty much every store that has toys and, you know, and books and all that, you know, all this stuff wouldn't be around if it didn't hold up. Right, I I really think that, you know, as everything goes, that with Star Wars, the first two movies definitely are some of the best storytelling possible. As I said, Return of the Jedi, great action movie, just a very ridiculous, you know, plot or motivation for some of the characters in there, but, you know, you take those all aside, you know, it, it still is probably one of the greatest things possible, you know, if you're, you know, a new parent... You know, definitely when your kid turns four or five, start introducing it to them. You know, it's it's definitely one of those things that it's kind of timeless. Yes. My son loves yes. Star Wars regardless of the fact it came things, out, you know, you know, 30 years ago. And Yeah, I mean, there's very little that you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to be offended by. And I mean, it's not, you know, there's not excessive gore or violence or language or any of that stuff. I mean, you know, they're, they're very family friendly, which I think is another part of their appeal along with the story and everything is you can sit down with oh. a five-year-old. Are they family you know, friendly? I think by and large, I mean, you know... you got to keep in mind, you had, like, several people losing limbs in those, like, you know... Yeah, but it's done fairly, you know, with the exception of uh, Panda Baba, Walrus Man's bloody stump of an arm in the the Mos Eisley Cantina, you know, with the exception of that, it's all done fairly bloodless, you know, I mean, you don't see spurts of blood flying all over the place. It was a different time, I mean, you you look at what movies were like back in the 80s compared to what they are now, what back then was considered shocking, we kind of sometimes laugh at... But there are those things that, you know, they did back in those, you know, eras, too, that you sit there and, like, wow, they actually got away with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, and all three of these, I think, are before the PG-13 rating got introduced. I don't know that necessarily any of them would have earned that anyway, but... What movie introduced the PG-13 rating? PG-13? I'm going to know it when you tell me. What was it? It was because of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That was was the first movie that had the... PG-13 rating that was what, introduced they, they, didn't, they didn't like people reaching into people's chest and playing out their hearts? <laughs> well, I mean, that... In a PG movie? <laughs> yeah, that was... So, yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of those things that, once again, Lucas had his hands in that as well, too, so... Yeah. 
But so I'd like to thank everybody that uh, you know has decided to download and listen to this. Obviously, you know what we'd like to keep continuing growing as this podcast comes as we get our footing. You know, if you got open criticisms or things that you want to say that we do well or say things that we don't do well guess what i got an outlet for you because if there's one thing i know is people love venting and commenting we are available on both facebook and twitter uh on twitter we're at bb r-i-d-g-e-s p-o-d or b bridges pod on twitter and we are the burning bridges podcast on facebook as well you can feel free to leave whatever comments you have on there if it's hateful things, guess what? I can dig it. If it's something you love, guess what? I'm perfectly fine with that, too. But more or less, you know, it's, as I said in our first podcast, a lot of this is just something that I'm doing kind of as a labor of love. It's something that things I feel great about, things I feel passionate about itself, and I like to feel as we go on, we get a, definitely a very clear identity of what we're doing. and We have fun in the process, so... Absolutely. Well, John, I'd like to thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I can be back in the future for something or another. Maybe we can do a prequels one where we were Well, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to do that. And now because of that, we're just going to get a bunch of comments, you know. And that's the other thing, too. If you hate John, let me know in the comments. Yes. And, and then he will probably he'll be like, no, actually, I canceled that. Part. I'm not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's how it's going to go. So, again, thank everybody for listening. Hopefully you'll go ahead and download both our first episode if you already haven't done. And with this, we'd like to try to at least get about an episode or two out every month or so. Download all the new episodes that come out. So thank you.